This summer, Afropop Worldwide is going back to basics, telling some of the foundational stories of the global Afropop phenomenon we enjoy today. As we sing and dance to mega hits of the moment, it's worth taking time to think about how it all started. We begin in Mali. That's the unmistakable voice of a very young Salif Keita singing about his ancestor, Sunjata Keita, who created the Empire of Mali way back in the 13th century. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. You know, there's probably no country in Africa that has given us as much unforgettable music as Mali. This West African nation is landlocked, arid, and poor, but it is a powerhouse when it comes to history, art, architecture, literature, and especially music. When Salif Keita recorded this version of Sunjata with the Rail Band in 1970, Mali was emerging from an era of socialism, and new musical acts were popping up everywhere. Today, the country is a democracy, and its musicians are legends the world over. You've heard their music and stories many times on this program. Today, with the help of our guest, Professor Sherif Keita of Carlton College, we take a step back and tell you how it is that one country could produce so much great music. That's our subject today on this hip deep edition of Afropop Worldwide, Mali, a history in music. Musician and hunter, Sedou Traoré, on Afropop Worldwide's Musical History of Mali. Our guest for this program is a man with deep passions about Mali. Sherif Keita is today a professor of Romance, Languages and Literature at Minnesota's Carlton College. But he was born in Mali, and every year he takes a lucky group of students back home for a three-month exploration of the country's culture and history. Long before Sunjeta in the empires of pre-colonial West Africa, Mali was a much greener land and a world of hunter-gatherers. Sherif Keita says, to understand Mali, you must begin with the hunter. In many societies, hunters were the military force to protect society against forces of invasion. As such, they had to be organized in a military fashion, trained to endure the toughest conditions, to travel over long distances, certainly to hunt. 
But also, if the military campaign required that uh, they venture very far away from the borders of the village, then they would do so. So all that uh, required physical uh, discipline, physical resilience. And spiritual powers as well. Hunters were mystics with a strong moral code. But you have to understand first that hunting is a process of mediation between the invisible forces and the visible forces. The invisible forces being the genes, the spirits that inhabit the bush, and the forces at home, which are the social forces, the world of the known, of the predictable social relations that any person growing up within, within a culture would learn how to master. But the mastery of the invisible is achieved through a long process of training of moral cleansing of oneself. For instance, they say that hunting is incompatible with lying, not being truthful, or adultery, or cheating people. So therefore you can see the social element, but also the spiritual element of hunting. The hunter learned to control the vital forces of nature, forces known as nyama. Nyama is a crucial concept in the spirituality of Monday people. And let me tell you, it is no joke. Nyama can save you, but just as easily, it can destroy you. They say that it's very easy to kill any animal, but it's not easy to control the nyama of it. In fact, this is one of the, uh, the formula that you find in Hunter's song, that uh, you can kill the big snake, but it's not easy to control the nyama of the big snake. When hunters kill certain types of animals, they have to be purified by special rituals. Otherwise, if they come into the village, they will be followed by the nyama of that animal, which can eventually harm society. The hunter really was the first musician because the hunter would use his instrument, I say his because it's the man who can take the life of animals. Women are not supposed to take life. Women give life, but they don't take it. So the men go out and hunt animals and do heroic acts, whether it's in the interaction with animals or in the fight in the battlefield. But at the same time, they are the ones that would use their own instrument, which was the simbi in Mande, although it's Dozogoni in the Wasulu area. It is the simbi, which is the first form of that instrument. The simbi, like many of Mali's oldest instruments, came from the jinns, the spirits. Hunters with their mastery of nyama brought these instruments into human hands. The original simbi had seven gut strings, but these days most are built with steel strings and sound like this. they would take the instrument and sing literally their own praises. Now, this is important. In traditional Malian society, there is a strict social distinction between heroes or nobles and the musicians who sing their praises. 
but in the oldest times, it was the hunter himself who would recount his brave exploits, accompanying himself on the simbi. So there we have really both personalities, the heroic personality, which is the man of action, and the artistic personality, the artist of the world. Both were conflated in the same person, the hunter bard, the one who would both hold the gun and also the simbi, the musical instrument. This takes us back really to the beginning. And many of the songs they created would recall the name of a very brave hunter who is seen as a model by a posterity. And that has had a profound impact in the evolution of music in the Monday world at later periods, because that's where many of the songs and the rhythms were taken from, from Hunter's songs. One of those songs is called Janjong. It's a song that celebrates the people who have shown bravery in the field of hunting or on the battlefield. In the past, if that song was played, whoever was allowed to stand had to have been somebody recognized as a brave person, as a hero. So everybody sat. And only the people that are being celebrated would stand, you know, walk around or take some dance steps. So this is a very important hunter's song. Sherif recorded this performance of John John at the Hunter's Gathering in Mali in 2007. These days, John John is a song that jallies, griots, or praise musicians sing to honor their most respected patrons. And Sheriff hears echoes of John John in other songs from the Jali repertoire. Now, listen again to his recording of John John, followed by the griot song Jula Jekere, played on balafons by the Suso family in Gambia. Their similarity shows how this music has traveled and how persistent these hunters' melodies and rhythms remain today.
From the time of its birth in Arabia in the 7th century, the religion of Islam spread quickly and far. It arrived in West Africa in stages. Sheriff Keita. The coming of Islam was not a process of military conquest. You know, Western Sudan, where Sudan meaning the country of the blacks in Arabic, was a zone of exchange, an area of trade. So I think Islam came mostly through trade during the empire of Ghana, 10th century, 11th century. Islam proved a very portable religion. It traveled with traders and gradually worked its way into the African cultural milieu, bringing with it all sorts of new ideas and models for social life. You know, the griots often connect the origin of their trade or their craft to Bilali, the muezzin of the prophet. The muezzin is the person who calls the faithful to the mosque to gather and pray. It's worth noting here that Bilali was probably a slave of African origin, and he was beloved by the prophet not least for his ability to excite a crowd and open their hearts and minds to the new religion. What we see in Bilali calling to the prayer, always being next to the prophet, already mirrors the relationship that the Jali, that's the griots, have with their patron. By using the image of Bilali, the Jali can easily project themselves into the Islamic mode. They were there before Islam, but with the coming of Islam as a new ideology in the ninth 10th, 11th century, the griots, the oral artists, had to find a way of legitimizing their function. Now, you notice that Sheriff called the griots, or jali, oral artists, not musicians. When Islam first came to West Africa, music still remained in the hands of hunters and warriors. The man who would change all that had yet to be born. Instrumental ensemble of Mali performing Sunjata with Maestro Keletigi Jabate on balafon. We've moved ahead to the early 13th century and the rise of warrior king Sunjata Keita. Those familiar with the Sunjata epic will recall a key moment when Sunjata's griot, Balafaseke Kuyate, first lays his hands on a balafon. Balafaseke Kuyate was that uh, central griot, Sunjata's griot. When he was taken captive, by Sumauro Kanti, a sorcerer king who came and invaded Mande and chased the princes out, killed them, and sent people into exile. So when Balafasiki was taken hostage by Sumauro, he found this instrument that Sumauro, as the sorcerer king, used to use to praise himself. Sumauro, a hunter and warrior, got his balafon from the world of the spirits. And Balafaseke discovers it in the sorcerer king's secret lair, surrounded by all sorts of grigui, including the severed heads of his enemies. 
The griot risks his life to play that balafon, but when he does, he plays it so beautifully that Sumaro is delighted and makes balafaseke his own griot. So now, the balafon has passed from the spirits to the hunters to the griots. And it took the action of Balafaseke, who entered the, this uh, magic space, and took that instrument and brought it into the social space, making it an instrument that a class of people would use to sing the praises of other individuals. Sunchetta ultimately triumphs, his griot is returned to him, and he creates a vast kingdom based on trade and social harmony among ethnic groups. And the griots, in their role as oral historians, will play a crucial role in this new society. The original griot line descends from Balafaseke, the Kuyate clan. Kuyante in Bambara or Malenke means there is a secret between us. That's where the name Kuyate comes from. There is something between us. The Kuyate clan the authentic griot clan and the griots to the Keita. They were the ones who were present to educate the imperial family and to become really the accomplices of the Keita with whom they share this secret. They share this complicity. Complicity, secrets, bonds between clans. These ideas became the basis of the unique system of social relationships Sunjata created. One of the legacies of the Mali Empire is the joking relationship between clans, the Sanankunya. <laughs> yes, this is amazing, and you still see it today. If a Keita, say, sheriff, is walking down the street and he runs into a Koulibaly, even a person he has never met, they are both free to start insulting one another without consequence, all because of an arrangement between their two clans set up by Sunjata Keita over eight centuries ago. Once we see each other, we start mocking each other, we start uh, disparaging each other, you are my slave. You know, you people uh, cannot be trusted because uh, you are thieves and so forth. But it's all really in fun. In fact, the joking relationship, the trade of derogatory terms, is a way of countering the nyama. Those troublesome hidden forces. The tension which exists in different kinds of social relationships is being countered by this freedom in speech, which we call sanakunya.
Sandia, Music of the Jali People, performed by Madiketa and his ensemble. Among the social institutions Sunjata left behind was Jaliya, the art of the griots as we know it today. Sheriff Keita describes Sunjata as a hunter who transformed himself into a statesman. And as part of that transformation, Sunjata turned over the art of music to the Jali or griots. And it became their unique privilege and responsibility from that time on. There is this uh, anecdote that when he felt that his time was coming to an end, Sunjata took his griot on his back and walked around the whole empire as a way of showing the people that these are the people I'm entrusting to you. As they will be your memory for the future, I want you to take care of them as a social group because our future depends on them. So right there in this image of Sunjata carrying his griot on his back, one can see the transition between musicianship as an undifferentiated activity from hunting and musicianship as a specialized function, which becomes hereditary within Monday society. So that is a very important moment. And it goes back to Sunjata again, who literally divested himself of the musical part of himself and gave it to a special group of people. Our musical history of Mali continues in the northern desert and the cities of Gao and Timbuktu. To get us in the mood, here is Afel Bokum of Nyafunke from his 2009 release, Tabital Pulaku. <laughs> from Yafunke in northern Mali. Today, this is a desert region, but at the time of the Ghana and Mali empires, it was green, even forested in places. And the city of Timbuktu was a major trading center. In particular, gold, mined in the south, was traded in Timbuktu and passed on to Cairo and Arabia. There is a wonderful story about one of Sunjata's successors, a 14th century Monday king called Kankan Musa. When Kanku Musa was going to pilgrimage, he took so much gold with him that when he stopped over in Cairo, he gave so much gold as presents that the price of gold sank on the market for years and years and years. And Kanku Musa returned from that pilgrimage with an Egyptian architect 
who oversaw the construction of a huge adobe mosque in Timbuktu. The Jingari Bear Mosque remains today as one of the symbols of Islam in West Africa. For a Mandi king to build such an institution in a part that is so distant from the southern part, it meant that this part of the country had to be at the heart of the Mali Empire. He wouldn't build it on the fringes. So Timbuktu had to play a very important role. So already, by the time the Songhai Kingdom came, there was a lot of uh, cultural integration. Songhai followed the empire of Mali in the 15th and 16th centuries. But as Sheriff says, Timbuktu was an important city long before that. Well, dates are not always very clear in that part of Africa, but Timbuktu is a very old city. Uh, Buktu was the name of uh, a woman who had a well. A well that travelers used to come to and get supply in water before continuing. So as a, a resting place, it became quickly a place of exchange, a place where trade was happening. With the coming of Islam, Timbuktu also became a seat of learning. Scholarly manuscripts from the Middle East were copied and traded here, and many of these manuscripts are now being digitized and studied for the first time at the Ahmad Baba Institute. As we begin to understand what is contained in those manuscripts, it's going to shed a new light on the history of Africa. It is really exciting. <laughs> That's the late Songhai singer of Gao, Ibrahim Amadiko. Sheriff Keita says that the political transition from Mali to Songhai was more a matter of evolution than overthrow. The capital of Mali in those days was Nyani. I think the capital may have moved a little bit throughout history, but mostly it was located between Mali and Guinea. That's where the imperial court was. We know that as Mali was declining in the 15th century, it was taken over by the Songwe Empire, which is more to the north, to the Timbuktu and Gao area. During the heydays of the Mali Empire, the princes of the Songwe used to be raised at the court of the kings of Mali. So already, that created a link between the Songwe Empire and the Mali Empire, paving the way for the political institutions of the Mali Empire to kind of migrate towards the north. In the Malian north, Fulani herders, Songhai, and other desert peoples rub shoulders with the nomadic Tuareg or Tamashek, who descend from North Africa's oldest inhabitants, the Berber or Amazigh. We know the music of this region today largely through the legacy and followers of guitarist and singer Ali Farkatouré. Ali was an unrivaled champion of northern music. But Sheriff Keita says he was more than that as well. A true representative of the multicultural world these great empires left behind. Ali Farkatouré has been a mediator between the north and the south because, uh, in a sense, he belonged to so many different cultural molds. As a Songhoi person, he had some Fulani in him, 
he had also some Tamashek in him. But he also had probably some influences from Southern Mali. In fact, Ali Farkature always say that uh, one of the reasons why he started playing the guitar, he liked the guitar so much, was the influence of Fode Bakita, a Malinke person from Guinea, who was one of the pioneers in spreading uh, West African music around the world. Ali even wrote a song for Fode Bakita, 56, that's 56, the year the two maestros met. So Fode Bakita, in his ensemble, used to adapt many traditional songs to the guitar. And Ali Fakature was one of the people who uh, really started learning melodies that were from the South, but were part of his milieu too. Among the last recordings Ali made before his death in 2006 was a session with the king of the Mondekora, Tumani Jabate. Their CD, In the Heart of the Moon, won a Grammy Award. And now there's a second release from that North-South session called Ali and Tumani. Here's a taste. Remember, you can read our complete interview with Sheriff Keita and find lots more sources on Malian music on our website, afropop.org. Coming up, our musical history of Mali continues with the Bamana Kingdoms, the French, independence and democracy. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. Mali, the Barry Ensemble with Wolo, a song that warns we may not always know who our enemies are, but we can recognize those who do not respect us. 
one looked at the Mali Empire as the period of West African history where the African people really succeeded in creating a stable major state formation that encompassed many ethnic groups and that prevailed over such a wide area of Africa. Then, after the breakup of the Songhoi Empire, mostly 18th, 19th century, we have the appearance of the Bamana kingdoms, which were more short-lived. They tend to be led by warlords, really, attempting coups against each other, fighting among each other. So politics became a question of intrigue. The Bamana, or Bambara kings, pushed back against the ongoing Islamization of West Africa. With the Bamana kingdom, there is a clear effort to reject, first of all, Islam. In fact, the word Bamana, etymologically, it means people who rejected God. God meaning here the Islamic God. So it was almost a return to the pre-Islamic ways. In fact, today in Mali, when somebody said, I am a Bamana, they always put a certain sense of pride in not being very overtly Islamic <laughs> and only paying lip service to Islam. There were many Bamana kings, Damonzon, Bakari John, and of course, Biton Koulibaly, the namesake of Super Biton. That's the band that led the movement to preserve and modernize Bambara music during the 1970s and 80s. Let's hear a little. Superbiton of Ségou. Ségou was the most powerful and enduring city of the Bamana Empire and it gained a reputation as a place of backbiting and betrayal. Plots so thick that even the saviest local might never unravel them. Of course, all this intrigue produced many stories and songs. One favorite is Bambugunchi, the story of a prince who lost out in a power struggle and was exiled from Segu and the river Niger. His wife missed the water so badly that Nchi had a canal dug from the Niger so she could gaze out her lonely window and see hippos. Bamma nanyake Bamma nanyake Bamma nanyake Bamma nanyake 
One of the great contemporary musicians to trace his roots to Segu, Ngoni Maestro Basiku Kuyate and his group Ngoniba, with Andra Kuyate on vocals and Vieux Farcaturé on guitar. Sheriff Keita points out that there were many downsides to the instability of the Bamana kingdoms. Those kingdoms were marked by internecine warfare and taking of slaves from each other and selling them. The kingdoms fighting against each other became a major source of supply of slaves that were later taken to the coast. It was really a very tough period in African history which paved the way for outside conquest in the form of Western colonization. One result of this turmoil was that some of those captured Malians found their way to places like Charleston, South Carolina, and New Orleans. And I think that's why many musicologists suspect that the musical traditions that were born among the blacks who were descendants of slaves, who were slaves themselves, carried with them many of the musical traditions of that part of Africa, of Mali, of the Segu area. One particular album that uh, really struck me is Kulanjan by uh, Taj Mahal and Tumani Jabati. Uh, to me, this is one of the best collaborations possible. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, Mississippi Mali blues. Mali blues. Really, when I hear it, there is something old, there is something that goes back to a hunter's musical tradition. They were able to capture the point of convergence between those traditions, the American musical traditions born out of slavery and the African traditions as they exist today and as they have evolved. The Bamana kingdoms fell in the late 19th century to the invading forces of the Tukulur jihadist of El Hajumartal. But in the chaos, a more formidable invader was making inroads in Mali. You guessed it, les Français. French colonization came to the central Sudan, which is uh, the territory of Mali, uh, from the west. Uh, from the Senegal area. So in fact, that's why you have the railway that the French built, which came from Senegal, meant to link the ocean to the river Niger. So the French colonial invading forces came from the west and took over the area of Kai, the westernmost part of Mali. That's where they established the first capital of the Sudan colony. It was Kai. And Kai is where the people called the Kasonke are. 
the kasonke, one can say in a very general way, a mixture of the Malenke and the Fulani people. The popular Malian singer Habib Kwate comes from a kasonke background in Kai. He wrote this song, Namania, based on a local style there called dansa. <laughs> So the French colonization came gradually, worked its way into Mali from Kai and pushed all the way uh, along the river Niger. And that's where they took over the Segu kingdoms, which had by then, at the end of the 19th century, disintegrated. So one would say that by 1900, French colonial domination was really established uh, over Mali. Sheriff Keita has some fascinating insights about the French colonial period, and you can read them all on afropop.org. Sheriff focuses on the schools the French set up to educate a new African elite. These schools were somewhat strangely called École d'Otage, schools for hostages. Huh. The legacy of these schools lingers in Mali today, and they play an important role in Professor Keita's own curriculum. We read a novel called The Fortunes of Wangren by Amadou Ampateba. It's the fictionalized story of a real character whose nickname was Wangren, who was a product of a school for hostages. One of those kids that was sent to the schools to be trained to translate the orders of the colonizer to the colonized. So Wangren, as a, a trickster character, because of his command of the French language and also his command of his own native culture and languages, was able to pull the strings for his own agenda, personal agenda. He knew that the colonizer needed him, but the colonizer also needed him. So he became really the master of the colonial relationship under his eyes. It's a very interesting novel, classic trickster stories, but also a mirror of the complex relationship French colonization established in that part of West Africa. Sheriff says this history helped establish a kind of opportunism in the Malian national character. But opportunism here is a good thing in my mind because opportunism is what enables cultures to maintain themselves. Opportunism allows a culture to evaluate anything it gets from outside and adapt them to serve its own need. So this is what the people in Mali have really developed a kind of genius in doing. The cultures have learned to talk to each other. The cultures have learned to exchange, giving and taking, giving and taking. And that's why the image of Sunjata as this heroic character, but also Sunjata has a trickster element to him. Sunjata came as a hero. He saw that there was a status quo that was not working. So he set it aside and created a new norm. That's why they call him he who scattered Monday, but also set it on his foundation. So it's that paradox that is built also into the trickster character. The trickster is never happy with the status quo, just as the hero is never happy with the status quo. In fact, 
There is a proverb in the Monday world which says that the hero is loved only on troubled days. It's only when there is trouble that people go and look for the hero who had been exiled because people don't like the hero around because he is always stirring things up. So they kick him out into exile. But when things become bad for the people, they go and find him. And that day is called the hero. Independence came to Mali in 1960, 50 years ago. The first president, Modibo Keita, felt the pressures of Cold War politics. He gravitated to the socialist Soviet camp. He was a serious man, a hard worker, and many musicians remember him well for establishing Mali's great regional musical ensembles. But Modibo Keita quickly established a one-party state, eliminating some of the country's most talented young politicians simply because they opposed him. The assassination of Ligabo Sissoko and Amadou Ndiko in 1964. For our generation, this was the first false note in Mali's modern history. It really showed the people how cruel politics could become. By 1968, people were fed up with Keita's regime and they actually celebrated the military coup that overthrew him. I remember that enthusiasm because I visited Mali a short time later. Uh, George, you know, you are one of the people that uh, had the strongest impact on a whole generation of Malians. When you visited Mali, I think it was 1969, you were welcomed as the head of state. I remember I was one of the kids who skipped classes that day and came to the airport in Bamako in Amdalai, the old airport, and stood there for hours for the plane that brought you to Mali. And then you were sitting on a convertible and we were running behind that car. I was one of those kids. Wow, Sheriff, I remember that moment. It was amazing. The plane was five hours late and I was sitting there and the fellow next to me on the window side said, oh, shh, there's a revolution. I don't understand. And suddenly the pilot said, Mr. Georges Collinet has to get out first. I was, it was scary, I tell you. <laughs> And you know, Georges, why your coming to Mali at that particular time was so important, probably beyond what you imagined, because we were the products of a system, Moribo Keita's regime, which was very oppressive of the youth, uh, very distrustful of anything coming from the West. And you and your programs on The Voice of America, we used to listen to it. It was fresh air for us because of the kind of music you would play, you know, the rhythm and blues that you'd play. Uh, this music coming from uh, the Anglo-American world was so important to us in that context. So when you came right on the heel of the military coup, it was as if we had seen the men we embodied, the counterweight in that cultural war that the Moriwoketa regime was waging against the West. I will always remember that. And I also remember this particular moment as uh, the starting point of a new evolution in Mali's musical life, because that's when we started as young people to create new kinds of bands that were no longer supported by the government, that were simply uh, created by individuals which were free to choose the kind of musical styles they wanted to play. For instance, I was the drummer of a band in Mali in 1970, 71, which was called the Damels. Uh, we used to play a lot of uh, rhythm and blues, you know, Carlos Santana, 
uh, 10 years after. But all that movement kind of started right after the military coup and your arrival. So I want to tell you that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you, to know you in person, and to just get a chance to tell you that. Salif Keita singing for Guinean President Sekou Touré. As we've said many times on this program, Sekou Touré, despite his brutality as a leader, was a cultural visionary who inspired all sorts of innovation in music. Sheriff Keita says Mali's musical evolution moved more slowly. The country was conservative, still caught up in old ideas, like the separation between nobles, Oron, and their musical griots of Jali. I'm flattered that Sheriff uh, thinks my appearance helped to stir the pot, but around that same time, the late 60s, a certain other provocateur did a lot more. Appearance of Salif Keita, this very odd character, first of all, is uh, Oron, who is uh, trespassing into the field of the hereditary musician. He's an albino, the opposite of the traditional canons of beauty that were associated with musicianship. Uh, Jalia seemed to place always a premium on physical beauty. So here appears a person who's destined to be invisible, who suddenly becomes visible, who's trespassing, I mean, into every possible space. To me, Salif, as a, a, an individual, managed to single-handedly create a revolution in the Malian musical space by all these contradictions that were built within him. Salif unleashed some creative forces in Mali, which later translated into Mali becoming such a fertile ground for all kinds of musical styles. So the revolution that Sekou Touré, as a, a heavy-handed politician, uh, and his party were able to create over decades and decades, Salif Keita, as an individual, was able to create in Mali's artistic space. And that's where I really see Salif's contribution. As we look back in history, it's important to remember the power of words and those who control them. The Monday Griots are part of a select group, Nyamakalao, those who manipulate Nyama, powerful unseen forces of nature. Words are believed to have the strongest Nyama because, you see, in the Monday world, in many African cultures, you can kill people by using words. You can build with words. You can also destroy with words. So anybody dealing with the past of a culture, the history of a human group, has to handle that very, very carefully. The Nyamakala, therefore, are given a special immunity in society. The people of the world are given total verbal license to speak in any register from the most 
elevated to the most vulgar. A griot can tell anything to the king in his face without having to incur any sanction. No wonder the griots of old were not only respected, but feared. In Mali today, some young griots are becoming rappers. After an era when their elders used music and words to praise the powerful and gain money or influence, some of these rappers feel they are reclaiming a lost aspect of their ancestral art, the right to criticize. All this is happening in a new era in Mali, a time when leaders are democratically elected and people are free to speak their minds. In 1991, Mali elected a historian, Alpha Omar Konare, as its president. This after brave citizens literally went into the streets to face down the army of the military dictator Moussa Traoré. President Konare did a lot to keep Malians mindful of the history we've discussed in this program, all the way back to the hunters. In fact, in 2001, Konare invited tens of thousands of hunters from all over West Africa to come to Mali and celebrate their culture. For one week, this was something to see. The whole of Bamako was taken over by these uh, formidable-looking people with their amulets hanging from the uh, red-colored shirts and pants uh, with little mirrors and instruments hanging from the side. I mean, working in procession, it was just amazing. And uh, I think Alpha Omar Konare was uh, making a statement about the role of the hunters, not only for present-day Mali, but for future Mali. Konare took some heat from that hunters' gathering. Religious conservatives accused him of promoting an Islamic culture. He didn't see it that way. He just wanted Malians to know where they came from and who they were. At the dawn of the 21st century, Mali faces many challenges. The ongoing desertification of its territory, the need to fortify its young democracy in hard economic times, and the danger of infiltration by religious radicals. But Mali has always been a crossroads of cultures and ideas, and its people, its greatest resource, remain proud and loyal. I like one very good image that Umu Sangare uses. It plays on the name of Mali, which means the hippopotamus. Malians are like the hippopotamus. They live in water, they come out of the water to eat grass, and then always go back to the water. For Malians, their natural tendency is to always go out of their home, to go experience other things, seek fame, fortune, whatever, experience, and always bring it back. So the image of the Mali, the hippopotamus, who is between the land and the water, is, I think, a very good image of Mali. Long, 
Thanks to Sheriff Keita for your fantastic insights on this program. And to Jeff Johnson at KYMN Radio in Northfield, Minnesota for help recording our interview. Support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts that believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX member stations across the U.S. And please, remember to support your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Womex, the showcase, conference, and marketplace for world and roots music, October 25th to the 29th in Galicia, Spain. More information at Womex.com. Visit the fabulous Hip Deep section of Afropop.org to hear this and other programs about West African music and to read our complete interview with Sheriff Keita. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Our director of new media is Mukwai Wabei Siyolwe. And I'm Georges Collinet. <laughs>